0: Father, we thank you for the grace you've given us in Christ, and we pray that you will indeed give us grace to trust you more, open our minds, our hearts, every part of our being to you, to your spirit, to your word, and we pray this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. What does it mean to believe in the resurrection? Maybe a, a better question, or a, at least another question, would be, what does it mean to not believe in the resurrection? I remember years ago reading uh, an article that had a, contained a story about a bishop uh, who had just been appointed in the um, in the Church of England and uh, was having a, a press conference. Uh, about uh, being the new bishop, and one of the things that came out of the press conference is when someone asked him a question about the resurrection, and his statement was, oh, I don't believe in the resurrection. I think it was just a conjuring trick with bones, and everyone there laughed, and they thought that was great, and, you know, and the, people, the, the, the people who believed in the resurrection sort of cringed and thought, let's hope that just goes away, and it did for a while, and then Chuck Colson says he was in Sri Lanka. And he was talking with the church leaders there and asked them how things were going. And they said, well, actually, we're having some trouble. And he said, well, what's going on? He said, well, that that incident back in England of that bishop, that word got around here as well. And so now the Muslims are saying to the Christians, well, we don't believe in the resurrection either. And it's obvious that you don't believe in the resurrection. So why don't you just come to the mosque with us? It's all the same anyway. And it was and a lot of people were leaving. But my question is, is that the only way you cannot believe in the resurrection? By denying the fact that something happened, are there other ways in which we might actually subtly, maybe, maybe subconsciously, deny the power and, and the and the purpose of the resurrection? I think this is what Paul is wrestling with in the church in Corinth. When he comes to this 15th chapter, of course, he's dealt with a lot of things in this letter. There are a lot of problems that they're wrestling with, and you get to the 15th chapter, and and Paul says, "Look, remember what you believed," and he he has this whole introductory section, and then he gets to verse 12, and he says, "Now here's my point. We preach to you about the resurrection." Why then are some of you saying that there is no resurrection of the dead? Why are you saying there's no resurrection of the dead? It's not that they're denying eternal life. They're denying the fact that when people in Christ die, that there is this resurrection of the body. They they think it's great for them. They're not denying the fact that Jesus was raised. They just don't think they will be raised. They don't think anyone will be raised. And Paul's point to them is, the minute you say that, you have have stripped the gospel of, of, of its foundation. Because here's the reality. If you say there's no resurrection for those for you, then there's no resurrection for Christ. You can't have it both ways. Either everyone, including Christ, is raised, or no one, including Christ, is raised. And somehow, that wasn't getting through to them. And Paul says, look, it's not that we ever told you this before. We've taught you this from the beginning. But somehow, you've lost your understanding. And so he says actually twice here, both in verse 13 and 16, Paul says, "If if you're not raised, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, then all these people that I've told you are witnesses of Christ's resurrection are liars. All these people, Peter, the disciples, the 500, Paul himself, were all liars. Is that really what you're saying? I I have a feeling that the struggle that they're having has a lot to do with our physical bodies. You know, we we often think that, that one of the great things about resurrection and about eternal life is that we can be free of these bodies. And I sort of understand that. I mean, our bodies are, are places where we feel pain, We've, whether that's physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain. We, in our bodies, we deal with things like aging, stamina, not being able to do what we used to do. I'm learning that. Um. Uh, For a number of years, I have used the WeFit exercise program. And um, you know, it's a thing where you do a variety of things, there's a lot of strengthening exercises and there's balance things that you do, and what I'm discovering is the longer I do it, the worse I'm getting at it. You know, I look back at my scores 10 years ago and I'm thinking, man, I can't get close to that anymore. Now, I could show you some of the balancing, how bad I am, but nobody wants to see that today. And, you know, you see it, and sometimes the, the, the person talking on, on this exercise program will say, you know, as you age, sometimes you lose power, strength in your legs and your arms. I'm thinking, no, I'm not. And then I realize, yes, I am. And, and this is, comes from our physical bodies, and we know that, and probably, but the most difficult thing for us, I think, with our bodies is that there is a sense in which we understand that, that our struggle with sin is about our bodies, Whether that sin is the the physical things that we do or the mental things that we wrestle with, our attitudes, our emotions, our thoughts, our actions, all of that is is housed in one way or another in these bodies in which we live. And, And there's something in us that says, I can't wait till the day when I am free from this body. I don't have to mess with that stuff anymore. And what happens is we move from that into the greatest thing, would be to get rid of these bodies. But we forget our bodies are a gift of God. God makes human beings, He makes physical bodies. And and our bodies are a gift from God that God has blessed us with. And the problem is sin has corrupted our bodies. But it's not that our bodies are evil. It's what we do with them that's the problem. But sometimes it's hard to distinguish. And so you have this theory that developed, uh, typically seems to be attributed to Plato, but I'm sure it's other places as well, of dualism, where you say matter is evil and spirit is good. And so anything that's of the spirit, that's a good thing. But anything that's of matter that you, can, that you can touch or taste or your bodies or all of creation for that matter is evil. And the goal of the most spiritual thing we can do is to get rid of that. And that's always in front of us. John Walton says, when he talks in his book about the lost world of Genesis 1 and other places, he writes about creation and he says that creation is functional. That's what God made creation to be functional. And when you get to the end of the sixth day, and he looks at everything and says, it's very good, Walden says that what God means is, everything is functioning exactly as it's supposed to. And that's shalom, that's peace. Everything is operating exactly as God intended it, and there is this peacefulness, there is this shalom uh, on on his creation, and he rests Now, does that mean that that there's no more to create? No. In fact, God says to the human beings, now, I want you to to enhance creation. I want you to be fruitful and multiply it. I want you to take care of it and nurture it. And I want you to bring more and more out of it. But in the context of everything operating exactly as it's supposed to. And it's only when sin enters the picture that creation and humans skew what God has made. Every day when God looks at what He's made and says this is good, human beings take that, they twist it, and we abuse it. And whether we're talking about bodies, people, creation, the problem is not creation, the problem is us. If someone if you get a, someone hand, gives you a brand new car, it's got all the bells and whistles on it, it's the best car that's made. And everything that you would ever want to do with a car, you can do. It's, it's beautiful, it, it's, it's awesome. And you get this car, you're grateful, you start driving this car around, but you, but you don't take care of it. When it needs oil, instead of putting oil in, you put you put uh, olive oil into it instead of instead of engine oil. You put carrot juice in the transmission fluid. You put sugar in the gas tank. You never take it to have it serviced. The tires are are completely worn out. And you just run on the rims, and, and you and you just you're always banging into stuff, and and eventually you say, well, this car is junk. I thought somebody gave me a good car. I thought this was supposed to be a good car. It's not a good car. This thing is terrible. And your solution is, I don't want to have anything to do with cars anymore. Cars are bad. Cars are pathetic. I'm just going to walk anywhere I want to go. We would think about, well, that's crazy, right? None of us would look at the car and say, well, the car is the problem. No. And the same way with all of God's creation, and that includes you and me, it's not that what God has created is bad. We have corrupted it, and we continue to corrupt it. And the problem is not what God has made. The problem is us. But we forget that, and we can come to the place where we say what God has made is the problem. And what we, really end up, what we really end up saying is that creation is in a sense synonymous with evil. And that's not a biblical perspective. God loves his creation. And certainly God loves human beings and all of his creation. And I think that Because it's not synonymous with evil. N.T. Wright says that evil is actually an intruder into God's creation. He said they don't legitimately belong in God's good creation. They're absurd. They're intruders. they, They are lies, active lies. They distort and deny aspects of God's good world. And like all lies, they can be powerful, but ultimately, they don't make sense. They're sneaky. They hide. And that's the trap we can fall into. And if God, if the evil one cannot get us to believe a big lie that Jesus isn't risen, what he will do is cause us to erode, to think in in our minds, to erode the fact that God has plans for us of resurrection too. And he will erode things like believing God's creation is good, that we are good, that we are beloved of God, that we are important to God. And that God can restore and redeem all of His creation. Something as one of the things I love about getting to the end of Revelation, you find that God does not annihilate all of creation and start over. He restores and redeems everything He has made. It's good. And that includes you and me because we are his beloved children. And if we don't believe that God is great enough to restore and to redeem, then quite frankly, as Paul writes here, everything we believe is really a lie. Everything we believe is meaningless. And we should be pitied. I have a feeling that that one of the reasons one of the reasons the uh, the church in Corinth may be wrestling with this is because they are trying to do the best that they can to to bear witness to Christ among their their neighbors and friends. The, this these uh, Greek people who understand Greek mindset. I think they're trying to, to help them, to, and so they are, they are trying to shape the gospel in a way that would placate their minds and, and help them to understand it. And there is good in that. But the problem is, it's a fine line to walk. It's a fine line between, let's make the gospel understandable to people, and let's change the gospel so that, it doesn't, so that people don't have to think it's any different than what they already believe. It's a fine line to walk. And I have a feeling that maybe the church in Corinth is wrestling with that. And maybe one of the reasons why Paul writes in the first chapter about the foolishness of the cross. And he's saying, "Look, if, if there's nothing different about, about the gospel from what everybody else believes, what's the point? And of course the cross is going to look foolish to people who have no concept of it. And of course the resurrection of the body is going to seem crazy to people who have no concept of it. But our calling is to help them understand it and help draw them to it, not to give up what we've been taught and believe so that people will feel more comfortable. If we're not offering people something different, something more, something greater, what are we offering them? And I think that that's one of the things that we wrestle with as we walk through our journey with people who are not, don't understand the faith. And it is a fine line that we walk. I have a feeling that maybe one of the ways in which we struggle with that in this whole context is is how we view heaven. You know, so often, our views of heaven are me-focused. You know, when we think about heaven, and lots of people, when they think about heaven, it's, it's about me. It's how what I'm going to be able to do and all the things that I'm going to, to accomplish, and, and it's about me. It, we are the focus of it. And the reality is, heaven is not me focused it's jesus focused because when when we understand life as jesus focused then we begin to experience the kind of life that we were created to experience transformation hope life joy grace and I think when we start focusing, when we change our focus of what, what eternal life will be to Jesus being the center instead of us being the center, it changes not only that mindset, it changes this mindset because the essence of the kingdom doesn't change. The essence of the kingdom now is what the essence of the kingdom will always be, Christ at the center. And what we will do eternally in our resurrected bodies is to worship Christ with all the things that we do, with our actions and our attitudes, with our words and our relationships, everything. All we'll want to do is to focus on giving glory to God through Christ. And if that's the eternal picture, then I believe God is calling us That that we would have that mindset now as well. That we would see Him at the center. And that's why John Wesley says that holiness, which I'm convinced is, you know, we talk about eternal life and, and the resurrected life, it will be holiness. And he says, holiness is nothing more nor less than love. Love that has been refined by the fire of the Spirit. Love that is the love of Jesus. Love that has the heart of God. That becomes our focus. That becomes our lives. And everything about us is Jesus focused. Because it's only in Christ that we experience eternal life. It's only in Christ that we experience abundant life now through His grace. And it starts with the resurrection of Christ. And that's why Paul writes in verse 20 that Jesus, his resurrection, he's the first fruits. You know, the first fruits are the very first crop that comes out of the ground. And it's almost always the most most plentiful crop. And in the Old Testament, one of the laws for the Israelites was you bring the first fruits to God, that's his. It's an act of worship, it's an act of generosity, it's an act of trust that God is going to bless the people with more and more crops to take care of their needs, they bring that first one to him. And everything, and the sign is, this is just the first of it. Everything else is going to be like it. And here's the thing. If your first fruit that you draw out of the ground is this wonderful crop of wheat, the second crop is not going to be corn. If the first fruit that you gather is is these luscious strawberries, the next thing that comes up on those same plants is not going to be blackberries. Whatever the first fruit is, that's what the following is going to be. And Paul is saying Jesus is the first fruit. He it's, It rests in him. It resides in him. He's the first one to rise from the dead and to remain living. And we are going to follow in his footsteps. That's our promise. You ever notice how children, often when they're learning the alphabet, they get to that one point in the, in the middle of the alphabet where it almost sounds like it's a, like five or six letters, but it just sort of sounds like one letter? You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V. You, know, you, can, hardly even, you can hardly even tell that it's more than one letter. It just it sort of gets wrapped up into that little, little bit L, M, N, O, P. And, and they're not really thinking about the letters, they're just sort of reciting and that just sort of comes. And I have a feeling that maybe sometimes when we recite the Apostles' Creed and we think about the Apostles' Creed, we do that with the last section, and you know, we give a lot of thought and time to I believe in God the Father almighty I believe in Jesus Christ his son and then we get to those last six phrases I believe in the holy ghost I believe in the holy catholic church the communion of saints the forgiveness of sins the resurrection of body and the life everlasting and they just sort of all mesh together and I'm not sure we give them the kind of attention and thought that we should That we believe not only in who God is and who Christ is and who the Holy Spirit is, but we believe in the resurrection of the body and life eternal. Because it matters. It matters. That God is going to restore us and redeem us as He always intended us to be. George MacDonald, in one of his writings, says that we're all going to be changed. But the question is, how are we going to be changed? In what direction are we going to be changed? He says, if we're going to be changed in a direction of something less than we, then that will end up being degradation. And if we're going to be changed into something that's not we, that's really annihilation. He says, I think we're going to be changed into something more we. And that becomes the development, the greater development, and the continual development of what God created us to be from the very beginning. That we will know, in a way that we struggle to know now, that we are his beloved children. And we will rejoice not only in who we are, but in everybody, everyone else is and in all of God's creation as His divine jewels. And the question for us now is, do we believe in that enough that it changes how we live? It affects how we live among each other and among God's created world now Father we thank you for this phenomenal promise that we have that we will not just live eternally but our bodies will be resurrected and made new and we pray Father that you will give us a glimpse of that now that we might live in that truth now We ask this through Christ. Amen.